Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. The other day I got a very nice email from an old friend, a writer, a fellow writer, who wanted to let me know that he's been following along with the podcast, which of course made me very happy, and he was enjoying it, which made me even happier. Uh, And then he went into a very, very long description of some of his favorite monster and science fiction TV shows and movies, which of course I really enjoyed, and ended up talking a lot about Godzilla. And in my response to him, I also talked a lot about Godzilla. And I love this because... To me, it's the embodiment of what I want this podcast to be. A couple of grown guys talking about their favorite Godzilla movies. For me, that's just like, it doesn't get much better than that. And now you know a lot more about me than you did before. So before I talk about Godzilla, though, a little background. I mentioned in, I think, my first episode that my dad was really into home movies. So we always had home movie equipment when I was growing up. And whenever my dad got a new camera, whenever he upgraded, I would inherit the old one. I was the only kid out of seven brothers and sisters who had any interest, apparently. So I always, uh, I either inherited the equipment or I just made off with it when nobody was looking. I'm not sure which. But I started making movies. I was just madly in love with the whole process. And of course... I started out by making remakes of some of my favorite movies. Now, this is back in the day when I was using 8mm silent film. So we're just talking about a very small color image with no sound, no dialogue at all. And I would make remakes of some of my favorite movies. One of the first I remember is I made a remake of Jaws, and I called it Finn, which confused some people who thought they were watching a French movie, because at the end of a French movie, it always says Finn instead of the end. I also did a version of The Towering Inferno, famous disaster film from the early 1970s. Mine was called The Infernal Tower. I'm not going to say that my remakes were as good as the originals, but I think they held up. At one point I realized that I was never really going to make full-length features, considering that a roll of Super 8 and 8mm film only lasted about three and a half minutes. So I came up with this idea of just shooting trailers. I would just make a trailer for a film that I wanted to make, and that would be the finished product. And the one film I remember that fell into that category was something I called Grass. It was a Revenge of Nature movie in which grass was killing people. So as you can see, I had graduated from remakes to creating my own original product. Now at one point in the early 1970s, Super 8 film went through a dramatic transformation when Kodak started adding magnetic recording stripes to the film so that we could now take sound home movies. It was an amazing development. A strip of Super 8 film is pretty narrow. It's 8 millimeters across. And on one side of that film, Kodak would lay down a tiny, tiny little stripe of magnetic recording tape, just like you would use in a cassette tape or a reel-to-reel tape, or an 8-track tape. Now, that was great just by itself, but because that strip of recording tape made one side of the film a tiny bit thicker than the other, it wouldn't reel up properly on a reel unless they put a second stripe of magnetic recording tape on the opposite side of the film. So because of that, you could actually record two tracks of audio. 
So at some point or another, after Super 8 Sound came out, I was so enamored with the technology, I saved up all my money, and I bought myself a Super 8 Sound camera and a Super 8 Sound projector that I could use to mix sound. This was a huge leap forward for me. And it showed in my films. I started making much bigger, much better productions. For example, a spoof of Invasion of the Body Snatchers called Invasion of the Mind Suckers. A classic. Also, probably the closest I came at that point to making a full-length film, I called it The Beast of Timberline Lodge. Made it mostly with my older brother Dave and my friend John Cash from high school. We had a blast making that movie. Totally stupid. Based on a made-for-TV horror movie called Snow Beast, I believe, that came out in the early 70s. Anyway, we loved it. Another good movie from that point, from that period, is The Giant Spider. I actually went to a pet store and bought a tarantula so that I could uh, make it look as though the tarantula had grown to gigantic size. As I remember the plot from that movie, it took place at the Institute for Tampering with Nature and Playing God. And a kind of a crazy scientist, played by one of us, I'm not sure which of us, was developing some sort of growth hormone that somehow got accidentally injected into his pet tarantula. And the tarantula grew to gigantic size and destroyed everything. We didn't get too far with that movie. I think it was maybe a little ambitious. Oh, I forgot to mention, the house where I was growing up throughout this whole time, the house where I was growing up had at one point been a medical clinic. And so it had a dark room. It literally had a dark room in the basement, just off the laundry room and underneath the basement steps. There was this pitch black little room with a sink and a tabletop. Apparently, the doctor who had run the clinic in years past had used it to develop x-rays. At least that's what I always thought the story was. So I had this beautiful little dark room in which I could experiment with special effects. I tried all sorts of special effect shots with my little spaceship models trying to make it look like they were sailing through space. With varying degrees of success, probably mostly failures, but at the time I really felt like I was onto something, and I felt very lucky to have this dark room that was basically this part of the house that was my turf. Nobody else ever came into the dark room. It was just me and my spaceship models and my movie camera. Lots of fun in those days. So that's the background. At some point or another, it occurred to me that I could buy full-length Super 8 copies of movies. And I started looking into that very seriously. And I was inspired by a real movie, a real theatrical release, uh, made by a filmmaker whose name can no longer be spoken in public. But at the time, this person did make some pretty funny movies. And the one I, the one I saw was called What's Up, Tiger Lily? The filmmaker had taken a cheap Japanese spy movie, a, a James Bond ripoff from the 1960s, and he had erased all the original dialogue and dubbed in a comedy soundtrack using himself and all, all his friends. It's a very funny movie, and it really inspired me to take my next big step in filmmaking. I saved up a shitload of money. I think at the time it was about 300 bucks, which it, you know at that time in the early 70s was a small fortune for a kid my age. So I bought a print of a Godzilla movie. The correct title is Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster. We always just call it the Godzilla movie. So for about 300 bucks, I get five reels of Super 8 sound film with an actual, honest-to-God Godzilla movie 
with full soundtrack, dialogue, music, the works. And I was able to run that movie through my project, my movie projector, the projector that had uh, multi-track capabilities. And between those two microscopic strands of recording tape on either side of the film, I was able to record an entirely new soundtrack for Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. So let me tell you where I went with that. So the plot of Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, involves a cop, his sister, a TV reporter, a princess from a strange land, a hired assassin, several scientists, including a geologist who discovers a strange meteorite that's fallen to Earth, and a whole bunch of monster fights. There's your basic outline. Now, when I... When I decided to rework this movie, the first thing I had to do was watch the movie about a hundred times, maybe more, because I had to get down the pacing. I had to get down the character's body language, the way their mouths moved when they were delivering their dialogue, their expressions, their interactions with each other. I had to take all those things into account as I started to write the new dialogue for the movie. So it was an incredibly long, long process. But the story I ended up with involved still a cop, a guy named Bruce Toyota, who just wants to do the right thing. His sister, Bunny Toyota, who is the Japanese correspondent for the American reality show, That's Incredible. Dr. Ken, a geologist who discovers the fallen meteorite and discovers that Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster is actually inside the meteorite, ready to bust out and destroy Japan. Oh, I should also mention here that Dr. Ken and Bunny Toyota have a little thing going on between the two of them. That's important. There's the paid assassin called the blind man, simply because he wears dark glasses throughout the whole movie. There's the princess. In my version, she became the princess of Blincess. And strangely, she is under threat of assassination from this bad guy named Crazy Murray, the cutlery king. But at the same time, she's being protected by some sort of aliens, because the aliens save her from an assassination attempt. And after saving her, they return her to Earth in the guise of a communist woman, at least in my version, because that's the way she's costumed. The princess is the sister-in-law of Bruce's boss, the police chief, who wants to set Bruce up with his sister-in-law for the weekend because he and the wife are going to be out of town. It's important, too. Don't, don't worry if you're not following along. It really doesn't matter, ultimately. But my brothers and I would spend hours at the movie projector recording and re-recording all the dialogue, making it all work, making it all fit. Sometimes we really had to go to extreme lengths to make it fit. Most of the time, the movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we'd like to think it's fun. Now, for years and years, I only had this movie on the original film stock, the original Super 8 print, with the audio recording. My kids actually got the movie away from me somehow. I, I lent it to one of them so he could show his some of his friends. And then I never saw the film again for a very, very, very long time. And I started getting very worried about what might have happened to my film because I only had the one copy. Well, it turned out my kids had gotten it digitized. So... It was a fantastic surprise. Thank you, kids. I tried to post it on YouTube a few months ago, but uh, Toho Film Studios immediately found out about it and cracked down on me and banned, banned me from showing the movie publicly, which I still don't get because I thought satire was okay under copyright laws. But what are you going to do? 
They barred me from showing the film on YouTube. I'm working with uh, my son to try to figure out a way to make the movie available on request online, and maybe by the next episode I'll be able to give some information on that. But for now, I'm going to reintroduce my brother Matt, who guested on my last episode, because Matt portrayed some of the very important characters in the movie. And Matt and I are going to talk about uh, our characters and how we got into character for the movie and uh, what we remember of making this very, very silly movie. So here's me and Matt. In the Godzilla movie that we made, Matt contributed the voice to a couple of really important characters, namely Dr. Ken, the geologist, and one of the twin fairies. So, Matt, what do you recall about me getting you to do this project? How hard did I have to twist your arm? I don't think you had to twist it at all, because <laughs> as the youngest kid in the family, I think anytime you get attention from your older siblings, you will take it and run with it. So I'm sure I was pretty excited to participate. And it was fun. I mean, it was goofy. And it was, and we made it funny, and I think it was enjoyable to participate in. So I might have been a little bit nervous at first or wondering what in the heck is Mark thinking about, but I'm sure that I had a lot of fun. And now when I listen to it, it just cracks me up. Well, tell me, how did you get into character as Dr. Ken? I don't know that I really did. I think my, I think <laughs> I've gone through puberty listening to myself because my voice cracks so much and it just, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I kind of liked doing impersonations when I was a kid. I probably wasn't ever very good. But, you know, Rich Little was kind of a hero of mine growing up, the man who could impersonate anyone. Mm-hmm. And and so I dabbled with that a little bit, but never really did much of it away from my friends. But, yeah, it was kind of, you know, when you're when you're dubbing in a voiceover like that, you get a chance to kind of be a ham and to kind of be flamboyant. So I don't know that I put a whole lot of thought into getting into character. I just tried to keep the same goofy voice up for consistency. Well, you did a great job. And one of the funny things about Dr. Ken is that um, in the process of overdubbing this movie and laying in all this new dialogue, uh, I'm I'm sure you remember how challenging it was to get the dialogue to exactly fit the amount of time that the characters on screen actually had their mouths moving. So for some characters, I would have to come up with, or we would come up with little bits for them to say over and over again to like fill up the time to match a little bit of extra movement of the character's lips. And in the case of Dr. Ken, do you remember what Dr. Ken said all the time? Uh, It's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember. Dr. Ken would always say, that's neato. Oh, that's right. (laughs) You you always threw that in (laughs) at the end of your dialogue because there was always just a little bit more of Dr. Ken's mouth moving. So we had to cover that up. And for me, it was I I did the the, uh, character of Bunny Toyota, and she was the Japanese reporter for a show called That's Incredible. And a lot of people may remember That's Incredible as one of the first reality shows on network TV back in, I guess, the 70s. And they had a couple of B-list celebrities who would just introduce, like, goofy, funny home videos and stuff. People doing amazing, weird things. 
And the hosts of the show would constantly be saying, that's incredible about everything they saw. So (laughs) for Bunny Toyota, her little filler was, that's incredible. No matter what was happening in the movie, that was always Bunny's reaction to it. That's incredible. So I always I always uh, appreciated Dr. Ken and his that's neato thing. Now, the other character that was so important is that of one of the twin fairies. For people who are familiar with Godzilla movies, you'll know that the monster Mothra, which is sometimes a big caterpillar and sometimes a big moth. Mothra is sort of guarded over on this tropical island by these two tiny little twin sisters called the Twin Fairies or the Twin Peanuts sometimes. They were actually a real pop music act in Japan in the 60s oh. and 70s. They were, yeah, they were very popular. My daughter got me a, a CD of their music once, and it's, it's actually a pretty fun CD. So the Twin Fairies are an integral part of, of the story. Whenever, uh, whenever the people of Japan need to get Mothra's help to uh, fight off Godzilla, or in this case, Ghidra, they always have to call Mothra in to help. And the only way to get to Mothra is to go through the twin fairies. So first you have to get the twin fairies on your side, and then you have to convince the twin fairies to sing their exquisite song and summon Mothra from clear across the Pacific Ocean to come swim to Japan and save the day. So to make a long story short, Matt and I played the voices of the twin fairies. So is it worth asking? Is it worth asking you, Matt, how you got into character as one of the twin fairies? Boy, I remember just having to strain my voice to get it as high and, <laughs> and rattly as I could. And I I would ask you to for us to do it right now, but I think we'd scare away the listeners. So I I will try to include a clip from the actual movie of us doing the twin fairies exquisite song back in the day. <laughs> I always thought it sounded quite nice. A lot, of, a lot of people cover their ears when it comes on in the movie, but I, I always thought it was, I always thought it was quite wonderful. So those are the two main characters I remember you playing. I'm also, oh, I am going to show, um, I want to show the opening scene of the movie with because I think it'll have particular appeal to some of the people who follow my stuff because it's all about UFOs. It's a bunch, it's a bunch of UFO hunters. Uh, on the rooftop of a building in Tokyo with a whole bunch of telescopes and monitoring equipment, and they're waiting to make contact with flying saucer people, with people who are flying uh, uh, through the Tokyo skies in in flying saucers. And you play one of the guys as one of the UFO watchers, and you're talking with Money Toyota through part of this scene. And you also have a little vocal thing that you do with this guy. At the beginning of every line, you go, huh? Huh. That's, what, that's what they always do in these movies, right? You have to, you always yes. have to fill that extra moment when the lips are still moving. Hmm. It's no use, Doctor Fudge. We're never gonna get the final ingredient tonight. Yes, I'm afraid those spacemen have screwed us again. Hmm, it seems like the flying saucer people are afraid of this television reporter. Yes, perhaps they're afraid to appear on this, that's incredible. Hmm, we hoped we'd get on 60 minutes. Ah, oh, that's incredible! Hmm, how nice of you to say so. Hmm, these flying saucer people don't even have heads, believe it or not. You mean they don't have heads? Oh, come on! 
How do you talk to him then? Incredibly enough, the flying saucer people use semaphore. And they have four arms. It gets quite confusing. Now that's really incredible. Yes, but what's more incredible is how we began conversation. You understand that communications with an alien race would have to begin at the most basic level. Uh, I guess so. Yes, so naturally we began by swapping recipes. First we sent the one for Czech's party mix. Oh, that's really incredible. What was the reply? Hostile or friendly? Uh, it was a very friendly one. They responded with a truly superior raisin muffin. Now, as soon as they complete the fondue recipe, we can publish the world's first intergalactic cookbook. I'll, I'll just ask you, you know, in general, what are what are your memories of making the Godzilla movie? I'm just really curious to hear, because this is now 40, 40 years ago, something like that. Maybe a little more than 40 years ago. Do you remember anything about it at all? I guess that's my question. I don't remember a huge amount, but now I really wonder how long did it take us to do that project? And oh my God, did you actually write a script out? I'm trying to remember if you had scripted lines <laughs> that we were from, or if we were just singing it by the seat of our pants. But um, but again, I think I was I was so excited as the little brother who didn't always get included in stuff that. It was pretty cool and, and in some ways probably kind of flattering that I got invited. And so, yeah, I, I enjoyed the moment. It was a lot of fun to do. I remember that. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, Matt, because it could easily have gone the other way, I think. It was a pleasure working with you on it. It was basically you and me and our older brother, Dave. And I'm going, right. to, be I'm going to be talking with Dave probably in the next episode of the podcast to see what he remembers, because he played the pivotal role of the police chief. Yes. And yeah, and the police chief has the police chief has a few things to do. Oh, you know who else you did, Matt? I just remembered this. You also did the voice of Crazy Murray, the Cutlery King. Do you remember that? <laughs> That's right. It's a small part, but you really did a lot with it. <laughs> oh, so many characters, such a rich plot line. You sent for me, your senility. Look at this picture, blind man. You know I can't see. Excuses, excuses. It's a picture of the princess in today's newspaper. In the obituary file. I know. No, you pinhead. She's alive. I see. Well, look. The only way to identify the princess is to see if she's wearing a royal wristwatch. You know? really is her, I'll just have to blow her up all over again. Very well, then. Go to Tokyo. Kill her again. Can I change my clothes first? Yes, but before you kill her, give her another chance to buy the steak knives. Oh my gosh, yes. And one of my favorite, you actually have, have uh, one of my... Um, one of my favorite moments, uh, and I'll be using this, I'll probably be uh, using this next. It's the scene where I not only do I play Bunny Toyota, but I play her brother, Bruce Toyota, <laughs> who is a police officer who is was supposed to have a date with a princess. Uh, oh, God, it gets so complicated, but I'll, I'll explain it. I'll explain it all in time. But there's a great scene where Bunny and Bruce... Uh, meet you at the at the bar at the geological institute where you work 
And it's it's it, in my opinion, it's, it's one of the scenes that works best. I think we were we were really clicking. We were playing off each other. Dr. Ken and Bruce Toyota have a really funny, really funny talk about you being a geologist. It's one of my favorite bits. I'm definitely going to use it in this program. Hello, this is the electric company. Is your refrigerator running? Well, you better go after it. I just saw it run down the street. <laughs> well, well, same to you, mister. Sushi breath. Bruce, what are you doing here? I was over at Frederick's of Hollywood. Are you trying to get on my show? No, I was checking out a story. Say, can I buy a drink? Sure. There's a bar at the Geological Institute. You can meet Dr. Ken. I thought this place had been condemned. Oh, be quiet, you. What are you trying to do, get the bartender mad at us? Oh, the bartender's an asshole. Huh? Oh, just kidding. Oh, okay. What's for you? Whatever you're having. A couple of salivas. Stuff will put hair on your chest. Oh, great. The last thing I need is more electrolysis. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Hi, hey, hi, hey, buddy. Oh, hi, Dr. Ken. Who'd you pick up this time? Oh, Ken. This is my brother, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Hey, I'm wearing a hairpiece, too. Oh, Ken, darling. I showed Bruce those pictures we took the other night. Yeah, I'd like some prints. I already ate the negatives. Oh. Say, I hear you're in a rock group. Kind of. I'm a geologist. Oh. Uh, like dirt and stuff. Right. What about the rock? That's a goddamn meteorite. Magnetic, too. I can't even begin to tell you how much money we've spent on pics. Now, isn't that incredible, Bruce? Saliva, please. It's much more incredible than a communist from outer space. Well, it was a lot of fun reminiscing with my brother Matt about recording our new comedy soundtrack on Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. But talking about it reminded me of some some things that I'm not going to be able to reproduce here in the podcast from the movie. One of the big reasons is, you, you may have noticed in some of the clips I used, there's a lot of background noise in the movie scenes. A lot of that is because when you're recording on a Super 8 movie projector, your microphone is always going to pick up noise from the projector. And if you've ever been around a movie projector, they are loud. So there's always this sound in the background of the film going through the transport inside the, inside the projector. And that always ends up in some way, shape, or form registering on the recording, no matter how hard you try to isolate it. So that means that a lot of segments in the movie that I still think are pretty funny and that I can understand because I recorded it, just won't translate. They won't sound funny. You won't be able to understand what's being said, and it'll just be kind of annoying. So that's one disappointing thing. Another thing is there are some visual gags in the movie that don't necessarily transfer. For instance, there are a couple scenes in the third act of the movie where one of the bad guys gets killed by a landslide. Now, one landslide in a movie would be pretty extraordinary. Two landslides in the same movie within about five minutes of each other is quite amazing. Now, I thought it was pretty funny. So I came up with a gag where for each of those two landslide scenes, in the scene immediately before it, I have a character say to the future landslide victim, Oh, I hope you get hit by a landslide. So, the, so we have a character say, oh, I hope you get hit by a landslide. And then in the very next shot, the bad guy gets killed by a landslide. I thought it was pretty funny. But to show it here, it's not going to make any sense. Also, gunplay. 
I had fun recording the gunplay, because there is a lot of gunplay, between Bruce and the blind man and all of his henchmen. Uh, I'll play you a little bit of it, and you can decide for yourself if it works or not. Let's do it. Uh-oh. Bang! 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 Pow! Give yourselves up! You haven't got a chance! Pow! Pow! Bang! Pow! Well, it may not work for you, but it still works for me. That's all we have time for today, and we haven't even gotten to the monster part, so be sure and tune in to the next Far-Fetched podcast when I'll be talking with my brother Dave, who did a variety of voices himself for the movie. And we'll be doing a deep dive into some of the philosophical issues raised by the movie, especially in the final act when all the giant monsters put aside their differences and decide to work together. It's quite beautiful, and I think you'll like it. Until then... This is Mark O'Connell, and this has been Farfetched. fetched